You know, a few years ago, like I mentioned a little while ago that like there's these high church calendars and they have these different seasons where they'll teach on certain things at certain times throughout the year. And you can always count on them like teaching on a certain thing at a certain time throughout the year. You'll go to some churches and the people, they dress up to the hilt. They're in suits, they're in ties, they're in fancy dresses and hats. You see that? Uh, there's a church that I drive past on my way here on Sunday, and I see them out there, and they dress all in white, completely white on Sunday. That's kind of their thing. I've had people ask us, um, hey, so what's the dress code at your church? And I'll jokingly say, tank tops and flip-flops. Because really, I don't really care as much about your physical appearance, but I definitely care about the condition of your heart. And that's the thing, like, I, there's a, there's, I, I want to put a big focus on that, not so much on, you know, the fashion of how you get here. But there's all kinds of the spectrum of how people will look when they come to church. There's also different things that come up within church of how people will go through their liturgy, uh, the order of their service. That's, liturgy is a fancy word for the order of your service, and, and so with that, I remember a few years ago, I had never gone to a Catholic church before until I moved to Maui. And I was invited to go to the funeral of a friend of mine. It was his grandmother that had passed away. And so we, we go over to the Catholic church, and uh, as we're in there, it was obvious that I wasn't from around there. Because I didn't know all of, I didn't know anything about the, you got to stand, and you got to sit, and you got to stand, and you got to sit, and you got to kneel. And I didn't know when to do any of that. So I'm like looking around like I'm, like it's my first time doing like a country line dance, you know? Like it was weird. And I didn't know about the, you know, when to respond, and the Lord be with you and your spirit. I, I didn't know these things. It was evident that I was not from there. I didn't know the rituals. I heard a, a story of a group of guys who took a trip to France, and they decided there was this really cute little Catholic church there, and they decided to check it out uh, one Sunday for their mass. And so they go in, and none of them understood French, and they were doing the whole, you know, trying to catch the cues, but not only the cues, but they don't know the language. And so while the, anybody in the congregation, when they would stand, these guys would stand up. And when people in the congregation would kneel, they would kneel. And, uh, you know, when they would sit down, they would sit down. They would just kind of follow the cues. And at one point, the priest spoke, and a man sitting next to them began to stand. And so these guys just go, it's time to stand. And they all stand up. And as soon as they stand up, the entire congregation begins to laugh hysterically. And they're like, uh. <laughs> so they all sat down. Well, after the service, they figured out that the priest had announced that there had been a new baby born in the church, and may the father of the new child please stand, and the whole row of men stand up. It was obvious that these men aren't all the dad. It was obvious that there was a handful of these guys that were just trying really hard to fit in to something that they couldn't fit into. Um, that's just, they couldn't ever be that. Now, it's easy to tell when someone's from out of town, right? It's easy to tell when they're pretending to fit in. Uh, we hear them here all the time with their really awkward, alohas, you know, we see that, it's pretty common. 
We see that people that aren't from here, yet they're trying to look like or appear like they're from here, and they just carry themselves differently. I saw a guy yesterday as I was driving through Maui Lani that he had uh, above the front of his truck, the grill of his truck there, it was written in, in backwards so that if you looked in your rearview mirror, it said, I'm not on vacation. And you could tell that here's a guy that was obviously grumpy about the whole tourist situation that's here. Um, but again, I can understand. I mean, I didn't think about it. What a place that we get to live in, right? What, like, what a special place that we get to live. And, and what an awesome culture that we get to, you know, partake in. I can see why people would want to pretend to fit in. But you know what's even better about this, about like the place that we live? What's even better about a, a better thing to fit in? Uh, that's belonging to God. It's so much better to be part of God's family and fitting in with the spiritual community. What a joy. I mean, there's just something that you can't fake no matter how hard you try. Being part of the spiritual community. Your speech is different. You carry yourself differently. Your life is different. And it's beautiful, so beautiful to see how like the presence of God just radiates from the lives of his people. What an awesome thing to be part of. What an awesome thing to fit into. But sadly, there are those who begin to drift. They drift away from that simplicity of just loving Jesus. That simplicity of just growing in his word. And in that, then they begin to get into rituals. They begin to get into these routines. They get these extra things that they add in in order to feel more spiritual as their hearts are subtly drifting from the presence of the Lord. And whether that, those are those rituals of sitting and standing in certain times, or whether it's as simple as doing what Eve did when she added to God's first and most simple command. Did you know that God, God gave a very basic and simple command right at the very beginning? And Eve added to that. Remember how God said there in Genesis 2, wait, that's not the thing. There's no, there, we got it. Genesis 2, is that, what's that? Okay, thanks. Uh, in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We see how when the, the wicked one came to Eve to tempt her and to challenge her, Eve recited this command to the serpent, where she said in Genesis 3 verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. She took the very command of God, do not eat of the fruit, and then to that she added a wise principle Right? If you're not supposed to eat the thing, it's probably wise that you don't touch it either. 
If you're not supposed to eat the thing, it's probably wise that like, look, if you're not supposed to eat donuts, it's probably good that you don't let them in your house when no one else is around. There's some wisdom there, right? But what she did is she said, God has said we shouldn't eat it nor touch it. So she took the extra thing that was just good, practical wisdom, and she equated that to being the very word of God. So if she said, God said we shouldn't eat it, and that's why, for wisdom's sake, we don't even touch that thing. That would have been a different story, but she had elevated her little extra thing equal to God's word. Now, Paul told the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he says, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's what happened to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Remember, they had taken the good word of God and then they added to it their Mishnah. Then they added to it their Talmud. So when God has his good, clear word, They're making it so complicated. They're adding to it. And with that, the world that Nicodemus was surrounded in, the world that he was surrounded by when Christ came on the scene, a world of weak religiosity, powerless tradition, Because their hearts had drifted so far from God. There was a time when the Pharisees started. Remember, it was the sons of Zadok. They didn't want to ever fall back in idolatry. They wanted to take the things of God so seriously. And what an awesome first generation that was. But as their hearts began to drift, the Sadducees, they became so natural in their thinking. And from that, then you had the breakaway, the Pharisees, which literally just means the separatists. They were separating from those that just took everything so naturally, and they were separating from the things of the world. And they were so serious about their relationship with God. It started off so good, but then they had to add in their extra and add in their extra till next thing you know, they're being super careful to spit only on rocks on Sunday lest to, or on Saturday lest they wanted to make some mortar and violate God's law. They're being super careful about hacking out gnats because they don't want to eat anything that was with the blood still in it. They're doing all of these things. They're tithing of their mint and their anise and their cumin and all of that. And yet their hearts were far from God. They took all of their traditions, elevated them to the same level of God's word, and from that just drifted away from their fear of God, their love of God, their devotion of God. They drifted away from the simplicity that is in Christ. They made it so complicated, so convoluted, that they just choked the life and the power right out of it. And when Christ came on the scene... The scene of a world of weak and dead religiosity, that is something that he, the living God, could never fit into. It was obvious that he wasn't from around there. It was obvious that he wasn't part of that system. It was so obvious to them all 
that he was in part that what we see there in John chapter um, 3, verse 2, we see this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So from that, like, look, we know that you've come from God. Like, we can't even do this stuff. You're the only one that's doing this stuff. And to that, Jesus just straight says to him, you must be born again. That brings us to verse 9 of John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? What things? How can a man be born again? How can a man be born again? That's a great question. How can these things be? And to get to the answer to that, you got to ask another question. Like, how can a man be born again? Okay, wait, before we get to the born again part, we got to get to the like, what is man? Like, what does it mean to be human? And with that, you know, there's, the, there's a study out there called anthropology. And that means the study of man. But we're going to do what's called a biblical anthropology. Because what does it mean to be human? I don't mean just in terms of like, you know, when we look out in comparison of the world and we do our kingdom, genus, phylum, species thing. You know, I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about like, what does the Bible say? Like, what does it truly mean to be human? Like, what's God's intention for the human life? And with that, you take it right back to the beginning. Right back to when God made man. Because look it. Like, God doesn't make junk. God doesn't make broken things. Like, if you were to go to Costco and you were to buy a fan and you take it at home and you open it up and it's broken in the box, you return it. And you say, this isn't what, this isn't what I got. This isn't what I paid for. This thing is broken. If it came broken from the manufacturer, now that's another problem. And let me tell you that like humanity didn't come from God as a broken thing. But yet we're walking around and we all know it. There's something deep and desperately broken about the human race. There is something deep and desperately broken about us all, each of us. So what is man? Well, at the very beginning... In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, we find this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let, him have or let, yeah, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now in that verse, you have a hint towards the Trinity, 
right? Let us make man in our image. He's not talking to angels. We're not made in the, the image of angels. God is not sharing his image with angels. God is not an equal to angels. This is spoken within the Godhead itself. Let us make men in our image, and then from there, in the image of God, a singularity. So a plurality and a singularity, all in one verse of how God has made mankind. Male and female, he created them. And from that, we start to get down to the specifics. When we get to chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 7. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. It's interesting. What did God make our bodies out of? The dust of the ground. Now, what do we have relationship with, with our bodies? Things that were made from the dust of the ground. Like this pulpit right here. This pulpit is made out of wood. The wood came from a seed that got all of its nutrients to become a big old tree from the dust of the ground. And I can have a relationship with it. I can touch it. This physical thing is being touched by my physical thing. I have relationship with the earth from the very thing that God made for me that he made out of the earth. You are sitting in those seats today that are made from stuff that came out of this earth. Like man didn't make the seats out of things that came out of nothing. Just like poof, seats. Like, yeah, it might have been refined and processed, you know. We might have had to take some fossil fuels and spin them in centrifuges to get the plastics and, you know, boil down, like, pitch and tar from trees and stuff to get some of the, the, the synthetic fibers that are in there and then the metal and the forging and the paint and all of that. But we didn't just get it from nowhere. We got it from the earth, and you relate to it with the very thing that God gave you that was made from the earth. So God made your body. In the dust of the earth. But then he goes on and he says, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That word breath is the word spirit. It's this Hebrew word ruach. The spirit of life. Interesting that on the one side, God has given us a physical body made out of the physical earth. That we have relationship with the things of the earth. And on the other hand, then God breathes into us the spirit of life. So we have a body, and then on this side, we have a spirit. And guess what? The Bible tells us God is spirit. Guess what capacity we have relationship with God who is spirit with? With our spirit. And now between the realm of body that God has given us and spirit that God has given us, it tells us this, and man became a living being, a living soul. So what are you? You are a soul that has a body, and with that body, you relate to the things of the earth. You are a soul, the way that God has intended you to be. You are a soul that has a spirit. And with that spirit, you, are, you ought to have relationship with God who is spirit. You are a soul with a body and a spirit. So in a way, you are a, this, this threefold aspect of you. You are a soul with a body and a spirit. Your soul is like your personality. 
It's the essence of your person. The body is the way that you express yourself and maybe not as good as you used to be able to, by the way. Right? Like you're out there and you see the kids playing football and you're like, oh, back in my day. And you're like, let me show them, let me show them. And people have to hold you back. No, uncle, you're not what you used to be. I am what I used to be. You are not what you used to be. You don't have the, you have the heart, you like the image. The, 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 the mind part of it is there, like, oh, I can do it, I have the technique, I know, but no, 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 no. You might not be able to express yourself the way you used to, but nonetheless, it's, that, it's, it's the realm of your personality. Your body is the vehicle that you use to express. Your spirit, though, is that part of your person, again, tightly connected to soul, in which you have fellowship with God. Now, that day that our first parents sinned, Adam and Eve, our spirit died. God said, the day that you eat of that fruit in dying, you will surely die. And yet, the day that they ate of the fruit, their bodies lived. In fact, the day that they ate of that fruit, God came to them and God gave them a promise that God brought judgment upon the serpent and then God gave them a promise and Adam that day named his wife Eve, which means the mother of all living. So she was going to be like the fountainhead of the human race. So her body didn't die the day that they ate of the fruit. Their soul didn't die the day they ate of that fruit because they used their creativity to go and hide behind fig leaves. They used their will to try to flee from God. Their soul was definitely alive, but what was dead that day, the separation of sin that brought between them, that separation between them and God where they begin to have shame and they're hiding themselves from God, they're running from God. Something died in them that day and it wasn't their body. And it wasn't their soul. But what died in them that day was their spirit. And with that day that our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned and their spirit died, that death of spirit passed upon us all. Our spirit died too. So man is a soul that has a spirit by which is capable to have relationship with the things of the earth and has this spirit, this capacity for relationship with God and yet is dead because of sin. Man, apart from God, is like a driver in a vehicle that has no direction, totally lost, not knowing where he is, not knowing where he came from, not knowing where he's going, separated from God because of sin, and by sin, like lashing out in the darkness as an enemy of God. I know it's not a pretty description, but it's true. Mankind separated, like, so, so like we're separate from the animals because we're made in the image of God. But we're separated from God because of our sin. So the thing that separates us from the animals is the image of God that we're created in. And the thing that separates us from God is the sin that we brought into our own lives. 
And seriously, when you think about it, like with technology, we start to consider the vastness of the universe. <laughs> it's just like, like if you, I don't know if you're following this, uh, this, what is it, the Artemis space mission, where they're like launching out to go around the moon and then back. And it's like the technological advancements to be able to go around the moon. And I'm like, weren't we have supposed to have done that 50 years ago? Like, wow, we're so advanced. Right, but anyway, whoosh, and it takes so long to even get there. It's not like pew, they're there and then pew, they're back. It, like the, this, this unmanned rocket goes way out. And then I remember watching that they had to like shift over to this new upgraded communication technology in order to send signals back to Earth. It was like fascinating that all of this they consider new technology, right? When there was a time when people were like watching it on black and white TVs, you know, and like, anyway. Um, when you think of how long it takes just to get to our moon, you're like, man, what a journey. That's not even talking about like our nearest planet. And that's just like our, our next door neighbor. You start to talk about the stars that are out there and the immensity of like this, the, the galaxies. When you consider man in light of all of that, we just seem so small and so insignificant. But mankind, like when you, like considering mankind through a telescope, small and insignificant, but mankind seen through the eyes of God as the spiritual creature that he is, that we are created in the image of God to him, greater and more deeply loved than anything else in this whole earth, anything else in this whole universe. And in light of that, the question we get back to, what is man? If you were to go to the scriptures to ask that question, what is man? And just do that word search, what is man? Let me show you what you come up with. You come up with Job 7, 17. Oh, this is all, it's not working anymore. Why didn't you guys tell me? Um, Job 7, 17 says, What is man that you should magnify him? That you should set your heart upon him? Job 15, 14 says, What is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a woman, that he should be righteous. Psalm 8 verse 4 says, What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you would visit him? Psalm 144 verse 3 says, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you're mindful of him? So when you look at the question, like, what is man? Like, what is human? When you look at that question in the Bible, you find God, what is man that you would magnify him, that you would set your heart on him, that he should be clean, that he should be righteous, that you'd be mindful of him, that you would help him, that you would take knowledge of him. When you ask that question in the scripture, you end up learning a whole lot more about God than you do about man. You end up learning a whole lot more about God's heart towards you than like even who you are. But maybe that's because that's where you're supposed to find the fullness of who you are in the heart of God. How can God love us while we're still sinners? 
How can God pursue us even though we've sinned against Him? How can the God who literally breathed into mankind the spirit of life fill that spirit with life again? And while I confess that I don't comprehend the everlasting love of God, what Nicodemus couldn't comprehend is what John said in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where he says, in him was life. Like, not just existence, but that true quality of life. Life in the Spirit. Life that comes from God. That the capability of putting life back into that dead capacity of man. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Nicodemus wasn't comprehending that at all. And with that, in verses 10 through 12 here of John chapter 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel? And you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we've seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Here's this spiritual leader who had been only able to think in natural terms and now here he is coming face to face with what he cannot explain away. And Jesus is asking him, hey, look, if you can't understand these things, how are you going to understand if I tell you some truly spiritual things? Like if I start telling you some really heavenly stuff, you're a spiritual leader and you don't even get this like basic stuff. What's going to happen when I start telling you some like really heavenly things? And then from there, he drops something so deep and so mysterious that this verse, like honestly to me, this verse that we're about to read is one of those ones that like makes your brain go on tilt. Like what? The first time I actually like, what is that saying? It like, it really blew my mind. So look with me in John 3.13. I know John 3.16 gets all the attention. But John 3.13, here's Jesus talking to Nicodemus and saying, okay, so you think you're ready for some heavenly stuff? And then, boom, John 3.13. No one has ascended to heaven, past tense, like, right? Like, no one has done that. But he who came down from heaven. So it's as if the ascension has already happened. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Wait, wait a minute now, Jesus. You're talking about stuff that's going to happen three years later. The death, the burial, the resurrection... And the ascension, you're talking about that here to Nicodemus at the beginning of this earthly ministry of yours as if it's a done deal, past tense, already happened? Like you're already there in heaven? 
Yet you're there talking to Nicodemus. Like I'll tell you, give you a little sneak peek. Later on, we're going to sing that, that, that old song. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. That's the order, right? Boom, boop, 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 boop. <laughs> you know, like, cool. I remember uh, Bruce and Robin, they used to have a mug that had that. Remember that? Like, it had like the arrows and it was like, oh yeah, that's like the whole plan of salvation right there. And yet here's Jesus saying, yeah, like, that's the way you think of it. But for me, done deal, already there, finished. And yet here I am today talking to you. What? Okay. The one who John declares in chapter 1, God, who created all things. Colossians, Paul tells us in Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So all things. John 1 tells us this. Paul tells us this in Colossians 1, that he is the originator and the architect, the builder of all things. The total created universe. And with that, time as well. Time began at creation. Creation was the first moment in time and the first moment of time. And time has its relationship with all created things, whether they be physical created things or spiritual created things. And yet he himself transcends that all. Paul explains things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, that he is the creator of it all, all things created in, in him, all things created through him. John 1 verse 3 says, all things were made through him and without, not, without him, nothing was made that was made. So all things were created in him, all things were created through him, and all things were created for him. He is the purpose and goal of all created things. Psalm 19 verses 1 through 3 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So just in terms of as being our creator, like glory to him. He not only made all things, he is before all things. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So the wording isn't that he was before all things. That's significant. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things. If it says he was before all things, then that speaks more in terms of like what we know of as time. It was him, then this, then this, then this. There's this sequential thing. 
But for him to say, and he is before all things, means that he's outside the sequence. That whatever, like, the beginning of all things is, like, he's currently there. He is before all things. Just like what Jesus, or what, um, what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, when he was, like, debating with the Pharisees, and they were challenging him about Abraham. And in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Wait a minute. He didn't say, before Abraham was, I was. That would be more of like, I'm older than Abraham, like I came before him. No, he doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. So he's outside the sequence. And the Jews knew right away when he said that, that he was saying that he transcends time. And therefore, they, they took up stones to kill him. And, they, and, he, and he, they stood out and said, you being a man, make yourself equal with God. They understood the statement exactly. That you are saying that you transcend time. It's language that can only apply to God. And that he's not just pre-existent transcending in terms of the past he transcends space and time that he is even what's in the future and that's the bomb that jesus drops on mr natural thinker here only thinking in what's natural okay you ready for some heavenly things then Watch this, John 3.13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man which is in heaven. Past tense? Like, you're already there, yet you're right here, and yet before Abraham was, you are? And from that, look at verse 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus' question in verse 9 was, how can these things be? And from that, Jesus who transcends time and space, the one who has always existed from like eternity past. Like, here's a little Christmas verse. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. That word everlasting, it means eternity past. It means that like as far back as your mind could possibly imagine, whatever's beyond what you could ever possibly imagine, like God is there. Like actual infinite eternity past, Jesus his goings forth like he has always existed, and yet here he's coming into Bethlehem. That same word, like 
from everlasting. So we were having a conversation on Friday night. Dan brings up a big word. The word was omniscient. Omniscient. And that word means that like, God knows everything. Omniscient. And to be omniscient, to like know everything, for God, it doesn't mean that like he knows this, then this, then this, then this. It's not just in terms of the sequence. It's not like his knowledge is building blocks. It's not like he was on this like process of learning. For God to be omniscient, it means that like all that God knows, he knows it all right now. It's like all that God thinks or has ever thought, he is always, always thinking it. Like all of his knowledge is always ever before him. And with that, he's not having any new thoughts. What? So if God's not having any new thoughts, and yet he thinks of me, that means there's never a time that you weren't in his mind. The God who transcends space and time, and yet there was never a time that you were not in his mind. There has never been a time when he didn't know you. Even before you existed, he knew you. And from that, there has never been a time where he didn't love you. It tells us in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, it says, The Lord has appeared to me of old, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. That word everlasting that's there is the same word as Micah 5.2 that Jesus is going forth has been from old, from everlasting. Like eternity past, there has never been a time that Jesus didn't exist and there's never been a time that he hasn't loved you. Now, right there, like, my mind just goes like, Okay, like, that's complicated. And yet it's complicated in the sense that it inspires wonder. It's not complicated like, oh, what day is this? I better spit on a rock. Like, I complicate stupid things. But God is just immense in awe and wonder. How can these things be? Nicodemus is asking, what's the question? How can a man be born again? Well, on God's side of things, how can these things be? Well, he's the creator. He's the life giver. He has always loved you with an everlasting love. On God's side of things, it's this infinite, like mind-blowing, you know, depth of riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Unsearchable are his ways. But how can a man be born again? Well, on my side of things, on your side of things, how can these things be? Jesus goes from one of the most lofty verses in the Bible in John 3.13 to verses 14 and 15, where he simply says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever or whoever believes in him 
should not perish, but have eternal life. It's just as simply as when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. How can a man be born again? Just as simply as when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. To Nicodemus, a Pharisee who knew the Old Testament, oh, this story would have been like, oh yeah, I know that story. But for us, you might be like, what's he talking about? There was a time in the wilderness wanderings where Israel, as they're traveling through the wilderness, they're going around the land of Edom, and in their discouragement, they start to murmur and complain against the Lord. Even though the Lord had been faithful to guide them and provide for them, they begin to murmur against him. And so it tells us in Numbers 21, verses 6 through 9, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for, the, uh, prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses, so Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. How can these things be? How can a man have life in that capacity in which he's able to have like relationship with God? That capacity that's dead within him from sin where he's just like become so natural and so powerless, just broken? How can a man be born again? Well, on God's side, the love of God, the unfathomable, unsearchable love of God that will blow your mind, the eternal God, the one who transcends space and time, who has forever had you on his mind. He came down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up that serpent on a, on a pole in the wilderness, he says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus was lifted up on a cross. Look, today, if you would just look to him, just simply believe, trust in him, trusting that he could save you, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Could you imagine that day that those snakes were running around biting people? And here goes Moses, and he puts up this serpent on a pole, and he says, the Lord said, if you just look at the serpent, you'll live. Could you imagine how stupid and how shameful it would be for people to continue to die when all they had to do was to look to the one on the pole? And yet I'm sure people are like, it can't be that easy. I gotta spit on rocks and hack out gnats. Like I gotta, I gotta stand up and sit down and say the Lord be with you and your spirit at the right times. I gotta do these rituals. I gotta do my checklist. I gotta do all of this stuff. It's gotta be more. And we complicate what shouldn't be complicated and we ignore the wonder and yet, like, the love of God is the wonder and the complicated part 
The salvation that's brought to you is as simple as look to the one who is lifted up. Look to the one who took the cross for you. Look to the one who died in your place. Put your confidence in him. It can't be that easy. Well, then just die in your sin then. Because there's one way for you to be saved, and it's by putting your trust on the one who died for you on the tree. And with that, the most famous verse in the Bible, I'm still clicking, hoping that it'll go, but it doesn't. So John 3.16, for God so loved, there's that everlasting love that we're talking about, the unsearchable love of God. It's so past finding out. It'll just blow your mind. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can it really be that easy? Well, let me tell you, it's not basic it's not simple like what god did is like absolutely wonderful but the means by which you receive is simply by believing look to the one who has died for you